3: Business of the Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. It's like something out of a book of fairy tales. What began as a used bookstore flourished into a nationwide
4: chain of huge bookshops.
3: They were places where you could grab a coffee and a good book at the same time.
4: But when things went wrong, they went really wrong. And we became a nation without borders. The. Bookstore, not, you know, real borders. We still have those. Hi, I'm Jonathan
3: Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. And you're listening to Business on the Brink. Hey, Ariel. Jonathan. So for once I wrote the intro. You did. It was very funny. I didn't do as many puns. I just did a really dumb joke. I like it. I'm glad. I'm glad. So yeah, we're going to talk about borders, but there's a reason we're specifically talking about this topic because it was a request.
4: Yes. From Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for listening.
3: Yes. Ashley asks, why did borders fail when Barnes and Noble did not? That's an excellent question.
4: It is. And well... We'll summarize that at the end. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna talk about the journey Borders takes
3: to get there. To yeah. get there, because, because it's I mean Borders was it was a company that defined the modern bookstore in many ways. Yeah, like they it, were
4: the trendsetter.
3: Yeah, to the point where uh, have you ever seen the series uh, Black Books? That's that's a BBC series. I haven't, but I have heard of it. So yeah, Dylan Moran plays a very grouchy. Bookstore owner Mm -hmm. in England, and at one point, one of those mega bookstore conglomerates moves in right next door, and it's it's essentially a Borders type Mm -hmm. of place, and uh, and it it really irritates him. Although everything (laughs) irritates him, it irritates him when customers come into his shop, and it (laughs) irritates him when customers go into the next door shop. So, but. That's beside the point. It we're is. going to talk about borders and not black books.
4: Um, I do want to say, though, I think it is horribly fitting that today our notes on the topic are on paper.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Also, a fun peek behind the curtain. We record this in the evenings and uh, at my studio at my office. And by mine, I mean House of works. It's not <laughs> really mine. I just work there. And uh, the day we're recording this is the same day that they're rebooting our network. So we had to go with, uh, with paper. But notes it fits. Today. It fits for a bookstore. It, and it fits specifically for Borders. So you're going to hear some uh, ambient sound effects that are just us turning pages. It's and
4: like
3: notes. ASMR. Yeah. Yes. We'll have to do an ASMR brink episode at some point. <laughs> so one of you ASMR artists really needs to like seriously break out of the pack. Yes. <laughs> we can do a whole episode on you. So here's the thing. This episode, it, it turns out that we learned it's not as simple an answer as you might imagine. I think... Most people would say that the internet was the reason why borders went out of business. <laughs> but it was really just a small part of it. Yeah, that was, that was one factor that was definitely important. Well,
4: I mean, yeah, it wasn't small. Right. But it wasn't the only thing.
3: Yeah, so we're going to look at the entire journey. Of borders. Uh, also, this is an interesting story because we typically talk about companies that have a brink moment where they either get launched into the stratosphere and mm-hmm. it goes from being a small operation into an enormous one, or the reverse, where a big company has a series of misfortunes, lemony snicket style, and mm-hmm. then plunges. This this particular story has both. It does. So it does. We're going to start with a, um, uh, a little side note here, um, I love bookstores. Mm. I love going into bookstores and perusing the books and looking at the book covers and maybe looking at the back blurbs. Same. Yeah. I I like the physical experience of having actual books to hold. Yes. That being said, almost all the books I own now are electronic.
4: I I don't own an e-reader. I do have a tablet and obviously my phone. But I... I much prefer, I get much better retention of the content I'm reading when I read it on paper.
3: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, So most of my books are hard copy.
3: Yeah. Dead tree edition.
4: Dead tree edition. I'll say a lot of those are currently in the basement as we reorganize our house. Yeah. But uh, I do still really enjoy just cracking open a paper book. I'm about to go get another library card just for that reason. Oh, nice! Yeah. Now, were
3: you ever the type of person who would go into like a Borders or maybe a Barnes and Noble and just park it on a wingback chair and read a book for like six hours? No, yeah, no, neither was I.
4: Um, I would sit on a chair and like peruse the content if it was something like an art book, yeah, or graphic
3: novel, a or graphic something. Graphic
4: novel or a, a, a a recipe book just so I knew the contents because it can vary so widely to know if I actually wanted to buy it. But no, I won't even like, I won't read magazines in the grocery line checkout. I won't, I won't read books. If I want to sit down and read a book that I don't want to buy again, I'll go to the the library.
3: library. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Yeah. I I remember going through uh, very important books just to make sure I wanted to buy them. Mostly Dungeons and Dragons source Mm, books. That is important. So let's talk about the history of the Borders store. It, it was founded way back in 1971 by the Borders Brothers. The The name comes from the brothers who founded the store. Nice. And it, Tom and Louis Borders. Yes. Yeah, so and Louis. Louis. L-O-U-I-S. So some of them are Lewis's, Some of them are Louis's. Low, Lau <laughs> Louis, Borders, Louis
4: Borders, uh, from yes. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, and originally it was a used bookstore. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They didn't come out the gate with a mega. Yeah.
3: mega bookstore. Yeah, these were two guys who were still attending the university uh, over at Ann Arbor, and they, uh, you know, University of Michigan. So they they didn't have. A huge amount of money to just drop on a on a bookstore, and it's funny because it kind of came out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Because so Louis Borders comes to do some postgraduate work at the University of Michigan. Yeah, he's studying
4: mathematics, by the way.
3: And he gets an apartment, and the previous inhabitant of that apartment, who had left, left (laughs) behind apparently a bunch of books. Mm-hmm. So Louie and Tom decide, well, I, mean, I don't want to hold on to these. I mean, but they could have.
4: You see, poor college students need things like furniture and you just come <laughs> together and, uh, and you get a end table.
3: A, a two by four and you got to put it on top yeah. of that and you got yourself, got yourself a dining room table. Yeah, but they decided they would sell the books. But they had apparently so much fun doing that that they thought, why not make a business out of this and actually make a used bookstore? Because – being so close to the University of Michigan, they knew that they could have a pretty healthy business just catering to students. Mm -hmm. So they made that decision and then they opened up their first location. Uh, What their first location was specifically is something that I actually had trouble tracking down. There was a lot of Conflicting information about which location was, in fact, the very first location. I guess
4: bookstore owners are better at reading information than recording it.
3: Yeah. But (laughs) as the 1970s, no one bothered to, you know, to to keep track of that. But the various uh, addresses I've seen are 211 South State Street and 311 Maynard Street, which are two different addresses. I looked in Google Maps and everything. Um, And so there's some disagreements about which of those stores was first, but the Maynard Street location was frequently cited as the company's flagship store. So whichever one was their first one, they ended up settling at another location at 303 South State Street. And all of these were an easy walking Mm -hmm. distance of the campus of the University of Michigan.
4: But this is when they started selling new books.
3: Yes. They decided to switch from used to new. And they also decided to go from a modest bookstore to a larger storefront not as big as what they would ultimately go with mm-hmm. but you're talking about 10,000 square feet that's pretty big for a bookstore It is
4: it is a good healthy bookstore Yes they kind of got addicted to big bookstores too though didn't they because they bought also bought a uh, like an old department store
3: Yeah Jacobsons which was a really old chain up in the Michigan area not something that we would see down here in Atlanta and uh, another fairly big space so yeah they they got that one too also still not far from the campus and that was one of the ways that they were able to really differentiate themselves from a lot of the other bookstores which tended to be those small storefront like shops yeah you go in and you know they the fact that they had so much space meant that they could end up having a larger inventory like a a, a greater variety of books than what their competitors could have, so you might walk into a little bookstore and have to put a book on order, but at their bookstore because they had much more space, they could order uh, a greater variety of titles and have a more there's a more likely chance yeah. that the book you wanted was already yeah. in stock. And,
4: and this was a less common uh, occurrence, so it it gave them a leg up now. Later on, people would gravitate back to the, as we get to the millennial age, back to the smaller, more um, niche-feeling bookstores Mm -hmm. for for big bookstores. But at this time, you know, bigger was better.
3: Yeah, yeah. And it was something that, again, was really appealing to the population of Ann Arbor in particular. They were known as sort of a a literary crowd. Mm -hmm. And then Louis Borders put his uh, degrees in mathematics and his knowledge of computer science to work. Because so? he, he designed a um, inventory management system, and it was uh, a, a way, a book inventory system, or BIS is what it ended up being called. And it was a way for them to track not just what was in stock, but what was selling. And it got to a hmm. point where they realized something that would later become a big deal for big data, which is if you look at information and you look at it carefully, you can start to identify trends. mm mm-hmm. So they could look at book sales and start to predict which books were going to become popular before it actually became a trend, which meant that they could be proactive and order more of those titles so that they could meet the demand as it rose up. So they could actually start to predict trends as they were developing. And that's amazing.
4: It is. I wouldn't wouldn't initially think, hey, a guy with a degree in mathematics would be the best person to run a bookstore. I would think his... Brother, who's who is a teacher, yeah. would be, but uh, apparently it was a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. They also did something really smart, and they took this
3: bis and they sold it to other bookstores as well. Right. So it wasn't like they had, no, this is our secret sauce, and you can't mm-hmm. have our secret sauce. They said, no, no, th- this is a very useful system; it will come in handy. And they that was a, another business. In fact, they they operated it as a spinoff business for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sold it off, I think, in the '90s. But they were still, uh, you know, and this is still in the '70s too. That is, yeah. that's an era where computers, computers are still see, babies. Yeah. Well, they're giant, giant babies. Yeah. But. Yeah. Personal computers are not really even a thing yet. If you're buying a computer, you're buying a very expensive, large machine, <laughs> right? Because this is not, this is not yet the era of the Apple II or the yeah. IBM PC. This is just before that. So. Yeah, they were using these uh, larger systems and this, this custom-made inventory system, and it was really going well.
4: I mean, I think they could have probably just moved over to this BIS system, selling it to other places, up, updating it to keep up with the times and been successful. But they, they didn't do that. They also expanded their bookstores as yeah. well.
3: They opened in other locations. So they opened some in Michigan, but they also expanded beyond Michigan. Yes. Uh, they opened up... One in Indianapolis and another one in an odd location, considering that their home base was in Michigan. Do you know where that is? Atlanta. Yes, yeah, right in our hometown. I mean, it may, Atlanta's big, so it's a good hub. Yeah, and, and and believe it or not, we know how to read. We do. In fact, we're doing it right now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so they opened up a store in Atlanta. And the nice thing was that this BIS system proved to be incredibly useful in each of those locations. And it proved that if you knew how to use the system, you could customize that store's inventory for that particular population. It showed that different populations wanted different books. So the books that were being sold, that were doing really well in Atlanta, might not be the same ones that are doing well in Michigan, but the system lets you predict which ones you need to order. So they were always on top of things. That's pretty cool.
4: Uh, The next really cool thing in in Borders history is in 1985, when they did open their first superstore. This is the one that you... Probably associate with Borders when you think of Borders or Barnes and Nobles. It had the coffee shop in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was giant. Um, And they hired a professional to help them expand this business. Robert D. Romualdo. Thank you. Robert D. Romualdo. Yeah, and that's
3: that's a heck of a name.
4: It is. Uh, I had to keep going back and looking at it to remember how to
3: spell yeah, it. Yeah, no. I, I, when I look at Di Romualdo, I'm, I'm convinced I'm not saying it correctly, but I will keep trying. <laughs> I probably won't say it the same way twice.
4: Uh, and he helped them grow this superstore model, and it was very successful. And by 1989, he was the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And he incorporated new things into their superstore, so now they didn't just have all of the books ever. And some coffee shops, they also had music and movies and things like that.
3: Yeah, I remember walking into these big bookstores and seeing, like, the entire section set aside for music and film and thinking, that's odd for a uh, for a bookstore. But I, I loved it. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about the music and movies stuff like, a little later because it— it, it's another one of those factors
4: yes yes but you know i loved it at the time because i could go find the book and then i could go find the vhs of the movie version
3: yeah of the book that's right so you can you can read the princess bride while you watch the princess bride yes
4: that would be a sobering experience they don't
3: exactly match up. No, they're pretty close, though. I mean, yeah, I Golding also wrote the screenplay that's for That's true, them. that's true. But uh, in the early 1990s, at this point, Borders is doing well and starts to head toward an initial public offering to go from being a private company to a publicly traded company. So under the proposed IPO, the company, they had not yet launched an IPO, mm-hmm. but they were in the preparation for it. And that, that involves a lot of work, a lot of very technical legal work to to set what the stock price should be, what you think the opening price is going to be, how many shares you plan to offer. That in turn tells you how much you think your company is worth, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you say, we're going to open at $20 a share and it's going to be X number of shares, then you multiply those two numbers together and you say, oh, so you think your company is worth blah, blah, blah.
4: It's like you're going on Shark Tank, except for you're already established.
3: Yeah. So they had... Estimated that they were going to have 3.6 million shares of stock. And at the stock price they were looking at, uh, that would have given the company a value of $190 million. Not too shabby. But they didn't end up doing the IPO. Something else happened. Another company swooped in.
4: Yeah. um, Of all things, Kmart swooped in Mm -hmm. in 1992. And they said, hey, we're going to buy Borders. Mm -hmm. They had already bought Walden Books.
3: Yep. yep. And they had bought that back in the 80s. Yes.
4: Yes. And now they wanted to buy Borders as well. They were hoping that uh, merging these large bookstores would bring them a lot of extra revenue.
3: Yeah, they were looking at Walden Books, which had a lot of like mall locations. Mm -hmm. That's where I always remember Walden Books, not as a standalone, but as a mall uh, bookstore. Yeah, and more then, more
4: of an express experience.
3: Yeah, and then you had Borders, the larger bookstores, and then they also owned a few uh bookstores that were connected to Walden Books, but were called Bassett Books. Uh, that was largely in the Northeast. There were all also, books about dogs. Yes, the Bassett Hound Books. No, uh, it was it was another chain of a small chain, like a regional chain of large bookstores. So yeah, that was kind of their their um. Their strategy moving forward. And, and at that point, Borders consisted of 21 bookstores. Yes.
4: And in 1994, after Kmart bought them, they became the Borders Walden Group. Mm-hmm. And things look pretty good.
3: But things were about to change. Musical sting. Da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. So we'll, we'll explain how they're about to change in just a moment, but first, we're gonna take a quick
1: break
3: All right now, Ariel, you were saying things were about to change. What did you mean by that?
4: Well, I meant that things were actually gonna get a little bit worse, then a little bit better, and then pretty better, and then a lot worse.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Could, could you perhaps elaborate?
4: Yes. Yeah, so Kmart, like we said, bought borders. Mm-hmm. They expected to bring in extra revenue. And it did under their their first year under Kmart, they brought in about Two hundred and twenty-four point eight million dollars
3: mm-hmm, profit. N- nice, yeah. yeah.
4: And in ninety-four, they reached one point five billion dollars in sales.
3: That's also pretty nice. Yep,
4: but surprisingly, not enough. So, Kmart in nineteen ninety-five was struggling. They they were having some financial troubles, and Borders Walden was not helping as much as they had hoped. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's there's some. Slight variation in reports. Some people say that Kmart's like, uh, we're gonna we're gonna ditch these bookstores and let them become their own thing. And some some reports say that these bookstores are like, hey, we're gonna become our own thing later.
3: Yeah. Hey, whether or not it was a decision made internally uh, mm-hmm. from the book side of things or internally from the Kmart side of things, the result was the same. Kmart did spin off. The Borders Walden Group, although at that point it had become the Borders Borders. Group. So uh, Borders Group gets spun off into its own company and gets put back on track for that IPO that they were so hoping for. They
4: finally get their public offering. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, right afterwards, they bought the 13% share that Kmart still had in them.
3: So Kmart had retained a 13% ownership. And then decided uh, that, or at least the Borders Group folks decided to purchase that back from their former parent company.
4: Yes. And in in 97, they had... Really good luck with their public offering. Mm-hmm. They ended up closing at forty-four dollars and eighty-eight cents a share.
3: That's that's a pretty healthy per share price. Yeah,
4: it was healthy enough that they did a two-for-one stock split.
3: Yeah, we've talked about those in the past. It's where you double the n- number of shares, but you have the value per share, and it helps. Uh, it helps uh, inspire liquidity. It helps inspire yeah. smaller investors getting involved.
4: Yes, and and all of the success. Um, Encourages them to expand into Europe and Asia.
3: So now they're starting to open international uh, locations. Their
4: their first store was opened in Singapore, Mm -hmm. and they
3: opened up 40 more stores. So rapid expansion at this point.
4: And their plans were for an uh, an international superstore chain with 1,000 locations.
3: Yeah, and at that point they had just a little more than 200 locations. So a lot of people also point to this era as being – in, in retrospect, uh, a, a dangerous one for Borders in the, the fear that they were trying to expand too quickly uh, and too aggressively. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of stories that talk about, you know, Borders, the company that was opening up stores like crazy in the 90s. Like there are a lot yeah. of stories about that.
4: Yeah. Um, however— The and 2000s. Yeah. Now, at this time, Amazon's also become— Becoming big.
3: Yeah, this is uh, right around the time where Amazon was... They they hadn't yet become profitable, no. but they were becoming more of a a uh, player, in, especially in the... I mean, Amazon started in the book yeah. business. Yeah,
4: they were just a bookstore. And to be fair, they weren't profitable, but they were bustling. Yeah. Like, from the get-go, Amazon had high, high traffic.
3: Yes. Yeah, so while while it wasn't yet the... Goliath of Goliaths that Amazon is today, it was uh, it was doing well enough where it could survive the dot-com crash that was mm-hmm. on the horizon and make it through the other side and actually start to turn a profit.
4: And DiRomualdo knew he he could see that this was, this could be a big threat. And yeah. he, he decided that Borders needed to adapt to meet this threat. And so they created uh, Borders Online.
3: Yeah, so... Uh, important step they, he recognizes that the Internet is going to be a really mm-hmm. uh, pivotal thing for commerce in the future. Uh, however, launching an online presence is sometimes more difficult. Than it sounds.
4: Yeah. It takes a while to get notice. It takes a while to get traffic. It takes a while to become muscle memory for your
3: consumers. And it takes a while just to work out the kinks yeah. so that you've created an experience that people enjoy.
4: Yeah. And so when they launched this site, they had some initial lo- losses. Yeah. And the investors freaked out. Mm-hmm and they said nope we're shutting it down
3: yeah we're going to we're going to remove this it's a drain on our attention and our mm-hmm. money and our time so we're going to close it off
4: and and i would say this was their first really big mistake
3: yeah they gave up too quickly
4: yeah because a lot of and we'll get more into it later but a lot of analysts say that them committing to the e market Late was what really contributed to
3: yeah, and it's, your and it's interesting because they didn't really commit to it late. They well, I guess you could say they committed to it late, but they I chose my words carefully. They attempted it earlier. Yeah, uh, yeah I was. I feel a lot of sympathy mm-hmm. for for uh, borders at this time because you're talking about again in hindsight, it's so easy to say, right? Mm-hmm. Because the internet has become such an enormous. Powerhouse in commerce, but in the late '90s, everyone was pretty sure the internet was going to be really important for commerce, but no one knew how. Yeah, and so it's kind of callous to dismiss a company for saying, "All right, well, this isn't working for us," because it wasn't working for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Only a few companies had really started to hit on that that uh, method that would make online business work, and Amazon was one of them.
4: Yeah. But it also it also did another thing. So not only did this the initial losses freak out the investors and get Borders Online shut down, it also meant that they were looking to replace
3: Diro Thank you. Yeah.
4: Yes. Um. So they did. Uh, in ninety
3: eight. Yep. So he gets he gets uh, the boot. Yes. And gets uh, replaced and is replaced by Philip Pfeffer, who ends up transforming the company and leading it for the next decade. Right. Just for a few months. Oh.
4: Wait, he just leads it for a few months. I don't know if he transformed the company at all, but honestly. He resigned.
3: he resigned. Usually if you trans- if you leave, if you resign after a few months, if you've done any transforming, it is not the good kind. I
4: mean, maybe he won the lottery and it's just like, <laughs> peace guys, I'm
3: out. So who do they turn to when Pfeffer leaves? You know why I'm asking you that, it's right? It's because
4: it's a horrible name to say, Jonathan. You're very mean.
3: Um, D. Romualdo. N- He comes back first. Yes. (laughs) Then you get the other name. See, now I said the hard one. Now you get the easy one. (sighs) Jonathan. (laughs) <laughs> Greg Josephowitz. Thank you. Yeah. Josephowitz comes in. So D Romualdo <laughs> steps back in temporarily, but then Greg Josephowitz comes in and becomes the new CEO. And this is the transition from the nineties into the two thousands. Yes.
4: There there is one side note mm-hmm. uh, before we get fully into the two thousands, which is in nineteen ninety-nine, Borders bought a toy company called All Wound Up.
3: Yeah. I had never heard about this.
4: I hadn't either. It's another bad decision. I feel because they didn't even look at adding s- toys to their superstores until the later later in the two thousands, till two thousand ten.
3: Yeah, and so they, so they sat on a company for a decade mm-hmm. without incorporating it into their their major brand.
4: Yeah, and and maybe all wound up was doing fine on
3: its own. I mean, we did a whole <laughs> episode about Toys R Us. We know how toy companies weren't doing so great in the nineties yeah. and two thousands. Yeah,
4: but it, it's. It's a missed opportunity.
3: Yeah, I agree. So this is another one of those moments where people point to and say, this this might be, yeah, okay, it was bad that they didn't commit to e-commerce mm-hmm. early enough. But then they point to this decision coming up that they say, no, no, that was really what killed them. And that was when?
4: Uh, they decided to make a deal with Amazon to sell their books.
3: Yeah. So, all right, again, I feel sympathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, again, in hindsight, saying handing the keys to your car to a, to a person who's dressed in a shirt that's got black and white stripes, and they're wearing a, a, a mask, and uh-huh. and they have a ball and chain hooked up to one foot, maybe that wasn't the best idea. Like, hey, that guy just stole my car. Uh, that's what that's the way a lot of people paint this is mm-hmm. like. So, Amazon's an online bookseller. Borders ends up handing over their online business to their their online competitor. Yeah, they decide to outsource their online sales. Yeah, but on the flip side, like we were saying earlier, establishing a web presence is tricky even today when people think that they have a real good handle Mm -hmm. on how online works, right? I've seen it. I've been in companies that have been a part of that where a big company comes in and rather than developing their own platform, which is hard to do, Like for the same reasons we were talking about earlier, they'll go and they'll look for another company to either purchase that company and just have them handle that part of it. Like Mm -hmm. it might be a smaller company that already does online stuff and say, well, just buy them and they'll be our online presence or they'll contract it out. Like I get it because if your business isn't already natively the Internet, you have to learn all of that in order to operate in that space. And that's a lot to learn. And yeah. it could be very different from the business that you typically handle.
4: And also you look at some businesses when they try to diversify what they do too much, it causes failure. They stretch themselves too thin. Yeah. So maybe keeping those resources to what is really your your strengths, potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Your,
3: your core competencies, as we would say in the old consulting days that I... I I don't talk about very much. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So I feel sympathy for this. But I also admit, yeah, this ended up being a pretty big mistake. Yeah,
4: Borders had a lot of pride in their name, in their brand. And this really diluted it.
3: Yeah, I I think there was still a belief at this point that the real world uh, experience of walking into a bookstore could have enough of a draw on its own that they weren't going to cannibalize their in-store sales by partnering with Amazon. As it turns out, that was a hope oh, based wise. on dreams.
4: <laughs> yeah. Also, around this time, uh, they their investors were not very happy with how... Management was working. Obviously, they had a CEO resign after just a few months.
3: Yeah, that that doesn't look good. Uh,
4: They hired, those investors hired Merrill Lynch Mm -hmm. to look at how to move the company forward, how to make sure it was profitable and being managed correctly. They looked at recapitalization. They looked at a leveraged buyout. They looked at having a company acquire them or acquiring another company and doing a merger. Um, And they decided to stay independent at the time. So Borders wasn't, it was coming and going. They weren't always meeting their projections, but they were still...
3: They were, they Making were, money. yeah. They weren't. It wasn't like hitting that long decline yet. Yeah, yeah. So then, two thousand four, they hire a new chief marketing officer named Michael Tam in order to rebrand and to uh, really. To to position the stores as being like the center of a community experience, yeah, like can, that idea that it's separate from something you would get online.
4: You can go – and separate from something you could get in a small bookstore. So you could go, you could eat your lunch, you could have a coffee, yeah. you could read a book.
3: You can eat a muffin the size of a child's head. Yes. Those are the best muffins.
4: <laughs> head sized muffins.
3: Yeah. The, marketing them is a little tricky, but they are tasty.
4: Yes. So – so they focus on the community. They they do some brand repositioning. They acquire a company or two. They make some Walden books, some Borders Expresses. Uh, they make a deal with Starbucks so that they can sell Seattle's Best. Yep. In their bookstore. It, this triage looked like it was successful. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2005, they posted profits of $101 million, and they launched their Borders Rewards program. Yeah.
3: Yeah, which I was a part of back in the day, uh, and in 2006, Josephowitz announces that he's going to retire, and will they've already chosen his successor, uh, a guy named George Jones, mm-hmm. and they do something that we have always stressed as being a very important. Uh, Thing in any kind of corporate structure, which is Mm -hmm. having a a solid transition plan, so you can have that transition not just of power but of knowledge. Yeah.
4: When Josephowitz said that he was retiring, he said, "I'm planning to retire in about two years." Mm -hmm. So they didn't wait for the end of those two years to bring Jones on.
3: Yeah, which is a good idea.
4: Yeah. Uh, Also, at this time, Pershing Square invests in the company for an eleven percent
3: stake. But uh, not all good news because while this year would be a good one for them, it would also be their last good year. (laughs) Yeah. It's the last time that they would turn a profit. Mm -hmm. Jones comes on border stock. Plummets.
4: Yes, to $12.28 a share. Oh,
3: that's yeah. a big drop. Yeah, that was a, a serious fall from grace. So they quickly react by selling off some of their subsidiaries. And I like in your notes here, because I couldn't help but make a snarky joke based on it. So Ariel wrote down, they get rid of England and Ireland <laughs> and the rest of the UK. <laughs> so I wanted to reassure my listeners out there. England, Ireland, and the UK are still there. Borders just got rid of their subsidiaries in those yes. countries.
4: Yes. They lost around $157.4 million.
3: But uh, this isn't about about like, here's as bad as it ever got. We're now at the brink mm-hmm. of true disaster, which mm-hmm. we will get into in greater detail in just a moment after this break.
2: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's full Regiment, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon Serum. This next-generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: We left off with the shares dropping down to $12.28, and we wish we could tell you that's as bad as it got, but it just got worse.
4: Yeah. In 2008, they went down another 28% to just $5.07 a share. Yeah. And that's still not... As bad as it would get.
3: Yeah. But I
4: I can't bring myself to get there that quickly. So at this point, they take a loan from Pershing Square, who's already an investor.
3: Yeah, they had taken that 11% stake earlier. Mm
4: -hmm. Yes. And they take $42.5 million. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: And then they put themselves up for sale.
3: Yeah, they, they might have even entertained, in fact, I'm sure they would have entertained, an offer from their arch nemesis, Barnes & Noble.
4: Yeah, Barnes & Noble was looking at if they wanted to put in a bid, and they declined. Then they did some more restructuring. They cut ties with Amazon, and they made Borders.com.
3: Yeah, a little too little, too late, as it yes. turns out.
4: And then they cut 156 jobs, which saved them $129 million.
3: Yeah, but they also uh, sell off all their stores that are over in the the South Asia area, like in the Australia area.
4: Yeah, yeah. And then they lost more money. So by the end of two thousand eight, they had lost hundred and eighty seven million dollars.
3: Yeah, and that was not great no, news. Uh, great news. Great news for George it Jones. It was yeah terrible terrible smell, and George <laughs> Jones uh, got the boot. So yes. he had come into a pretty tough situation it had gotten tougher uh, but the board of directors was not going to try and wait and see if george jones could turn things around so instead They replace him with a guy named Ron Marshall.
4: Ron Marshall, I feel bad for him. He didn't come in in at a bad time. He came in at a worse time.
3: Yeah, the worst time. (laughs) Because not only was the company doing badly, pretty soon all of North America and by extension, the rest of the world was going to have a real tough time. Yes,
4: we were hitting the global financial crisis era. The
3: Great Recession. Yes.
4: And so Borders starts closing their Walden books. Mm -hmm. I get it because, you know, that's... Not their flesh and blood. That's just
3: yeah. This is too anecdotal. I don't go to malls anymore. Mm-hmm. The few times when I go to malls, I definitely don't see the type of stores that were around when I was when I did go to malls.
4: I mean, I, I do so go to malls. Shoe,
3: shoe stores. I see yeah. shoe stores. Claire's. If I want to get if I want to get uh-huh. stuff pierced by a gun, then I can go <laughs> there. Know, GameStop. They're mm-hmm. in malls. Yes. Uh, I just GameStop's go to the standalones. Listen, I I do go to
4: malls, and and there's a lot of clothing stores. And some food stores and a couple of electronic stores. There's usually either an Apple or a Microsoft. I'm getting off topic. I really just want to go shopping at this moment. Um, okay. <laughs>
3: well, let's get back on onto, onto the track here. But yeah,
4: there's there's a few there's a few little bookstores, but they're more like calendars and games.
3: Yeah. So they continue trying to to cut huge amounts of costs. They uh, end up closing 200 stores. They lay off another 1,500 people. They had gone from having more than a thousand stores at their peak to fewer than two hundred. So, you know that that era we talked about where they were really focusing on expansion, mm-hmm. they're back now below where they were at that point,
4: yeah. and now they're also fighting ebooks, the mm-hmm. the rising popularity of ebooks, which means that their two thousand and nine holiday sales were, Not great. They dropped thirteen percent from their norm.
3: Yeah, this would have been also the era where all the bookstores were trying to come out with their own branded proprietary e-readers. Yes, that that was that was rough times too.
4: It was Uh, just after a year, Ron Marshall gets kicked out.
3: Yep, didn't last very long at all.
4: Yeah, Mike Edwards comes in
3: as interim CEO.
4: Uh, more layoffs occur. They pay back some of their loan and they restructure the rest. So yep. that's that's a good step. Maybe things are looking up.
3: Then uh, they get their more permanent CEO, Bennett LeBeau mm-hmm. or Labau, And Edwards moves to being CEO of their subsidiary branches. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was after Bennett had invested about $25 million in the company. And so then they say, all right, well, what can we do to address this beyond closing locations, they decided to try and update their brand.
4: Yes. Um, so they do things like start selling e-readers. Yeah. But instead of having their own one brand of e-reader, like the Barnes & Noble Nook, mm-hmm. they sell six different kinds.
3: Yeah. This was where we started getting into that brand confusion stuff. And by then... but the, then
4: the Nook and the, like, the, Kindle, the Kindle were the out. The Kindle
3: was really the ruler of the roost. Yeah, because... Uh, Amazon had really positioned the Kindle for success and would continue to do so. As Amazon would unveil new programs like the Prime membership, mm-hmm. they would throw in uh, incentives like, you know, a discount on a Kindle reader. And so Amazon was absolutely determined to dominate that space, and they, that's what they did.
4: And, and Barnes and & Nobles did all right because Barnes & Nobles jumped on it. Immediately, mm-hmm. Borders was a little late to the game. Once again, they launched an e-library, which Barnes and Nobles also did, but Barnes and Nobles did it eight months earlier. Yeah, so their Borders is running a year late on all of this technology. Um, they sell off their Paper Chase acquisition they had bought Paper Chase a while ago, and they lay off more workers.
3: Yep, they end up losing more than $46 million by that second quarter. So they say, all right, well, let's keep on trying to fix this. Uh, they start trying to put those toys and games in their stores, like we had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. They launch a new website. They make another attempt at saying, hey, Barnes & Noble, how about maybe now? Pretty
4: please. Like,
3: we look real real cute.
4: Yeah, and, and Pershing Square, uh, who was owned by Bill Ackman, who was kind of helping trying to help Borders really succeed, offers to help finance the merger between Barnes and &
3: Nobles and Borders. But so, still no dice. No. Uh, so, yeah, by the end of 2010, it's getting to the point where it's impossible to deny inevitability. They are looking at the very real possibility of going out of business. They had lost another $74 million uh, mm-hmm. in that first quarter of 2010, Uh, They delayed vendor payments. Uh, They started to try and figure out if they could maybe make a deal where they wouldn't have to pay cash up front for the book stock. They would only have to – you know, it's kind of like when Nintendo offered Mm -hmm. to – I was
4: thinking the same thing.
3: Yeah, they said, we'll provide all the stock. You don't have to pay us. Just pay us if you sell the console. That's kind of what – Borders was doing, except on the other side of yeah, it, Yeah, but right? publishers
4: publishers don't like that very much.
3: No, no, publishers like it when you buy their books. They're yeah. not so great about, like, no, I'll <laughs> give you a whole bunch for free, and then you just pay me if you happen to move them.
4: They're like, look, you guys, it looks like you might be looking at bankruptcy. We don't want your debt.
3: <laughs> yeah. They kept on trying, but it just wasn't really moving anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and by February, the New York Stock Exchange... Pretty much put the nail in the coffin because mm-hmm. the the stock exchange there, – there are rules for being listed yes. on the New York Stock Exchange. You have to meet certain criteria including a certain share price or else – The stock market will delist you. Mm -hmm.
4: And And, I think it's like a dollar. I think a dollar is that minimum. And they were at 90 cents a share.
3: Yeah. So they got delisted. For a while. It it
4: wasn't like they hit 90 cents and New York Stock Exchange said, you're out.
3: Yeah. So they tried to go into chapter 11. Uh, They said that they had $1.27 billion in assets and $1.29 billion in debt.
4: Yeah. They had some investors lined up. And they eventually backed out. So they were originally, when they went into when they went into file for Chapter 11, they were hoping to be out of bankruptcy by September. They had some bids, a bunch of, like I said, they all kind of backed out.
3: Yeah, they all fell through.
4: They had a buyer. Uh, Najafi was looking to buy them, but the border's creditors didn't like that.
3: Yeah, they were afraid that uh, Najafi was just going to come in, liquidate all the assets, and then sell them off. And then the debt would be left with whomever the yeah. you know was still around. And they said, "No, we don't want to do that." The creditors
4: are like, "Well, we feel like he's kind of a shark. We'll kind of we'll do this, but we have to pick who the liquidators are mm-hmm. if they liquidate." And and it was just this big ordeal between Najafi and the creditors and the publishers, and they couldn't come to an agreement. And so Najafi pulled out as well.
3: Yeah. So then. It ends up having to go to liquidation anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, It ends up going up for auction and goes into – the company goes into Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Yeah. So Borders liquidates their stores. Most of them are liquidated by July 2011. Uh, that yep. includes all the Walden books as well, and, and the book, yeah, you know, the book kiosks. When it went into Chapter Seven, it at that point had been the second largest bookstore chain, just behind Barnes and Noble.
4: It's so sad because I don't think Barnes and Noble would be what it is if it hadn't been for Borders. Yeah,
3: uh, and then now Barnes and Noble actually owns intellectual property of Borders. They they spent thirteen point nine million dollars for it. Mm-hmm. To have the intellectual property. So, let's answer that question though. Why did Barnes and Noble survive, but Borders didn't?
4: I think it was uh, late adoption to the trends. Yeah, I mean that—that's really what it is. Are there some other things? So, they were late to commit to to e-commerce. Yeah, Yeah. they were late to jump on the on the ebook train. Mm -hmm. They. They invested in CDs and DVDs at a time when people were looking at digital media yeah, along with the
3: ebooks. Just as the population was starting to migrate from physical media to digital media where they were downloading stuff mm-hmm. instead of just buying the hard copy stuff.
4: And, and then my assumption is they also weren't bringing things into their store that people couldn't download, like the toys, like the games, yeah. things like that. Also, some analysts say that expanding internationally pulled them too thin Mm -hmm. as well. But I I think that's probably a smaller piece of the puzzle because one of the fun facts I have later on.
3: Combination of things, again, like the super aggressive stance on opening more locations probably was overextending their reach a little bit. And then, as you say, these late adoptions of these very critical technologies would end up haunting them, so... Mm-hmm. It, oh, well, and CEO turnover didn't help. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, <laughs> that was another thing, right, where you, you put someone new in charge and if things don't immediately get better, saying, let's change it out again. Like, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes mm-hmm. you put someone in charge and it becomes very clear, like, ooh, we made a terrible decision. Yeah. But in other cases... Factors that have nothing to do with the leadership. It could be external factors that the leadership is dealing with. And maybe maybe things would have been worse without that yeah. leader in place. Yeah.
4: And I mean, so when you see one CEO go out quickly, one or two, that's understandable. Once, once you get a rash of these CEOs cycling in and out, then yeah, you, you like start thinking the, the company just freaking out. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah, the board of directors doesn't have any... Ah, uh, confidence yeah. in the company, and that in turn trickles down. Like the the morale problem goes throughout the entire organization at that point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was this was a a case of like a lot of bad factors all hitting at the same time. Yeah. Uh, that being said, while we have these terrible stories to tell, we also have fun facts. Yes we. Ariel likes to put these at the end of every episode. I did a couple of them for this one. Uh, one of the fun facts I have is that one of the first Borders locations is now a restaurant and craft beer pub called Hopcat. Don't know if it's the original store or not, but you can apparently get one of up to a hundred different beers on tap there.
4: I'm going to imagine that the the bar is built up on old Borders
3: books. Yeah. And then uh, Louis Borders was also responsible for founding another famous company that lasted only a short while. In fact, is a company that is largely associated with the dot-com crash. And that would be Webvan. Webvan is one of the most notable failures during the Mm dot-com days. It lost nearly a billion dollars of investment when the company failed. I think that investors had put in $850 million into that company And it was one of the ones that went belly up shortly after the market crashed in the dot com. Bubble burst. Poor Louie. Yeah. He also founded another company called oh. KeepMedia.com. Uh, that was a company that would archive magazine articles, and it would allow people to access them on a subscription basis. So it was behind a paywall, right? You would mm-hmm. The idea being, oh, I want to get access to this old article that was published in, say, Popular Mechanics back in 1963. And so you would pay a subscription. Uh, the... Name of the company changed to MyWire.com, but it didn't result in a successful business model. Uh, So I don't know exactly when it went out of business. I couldn't find Mm -hmm. any information on that. But I will tell you that if you try to navigate to MyWire.com now, you'll get like kind of just a bunch of generic links. It's not even – it's clearly not the same thing.
4: I guess guess for Louis it was really one and done. Yeah. At least as of 2015 – there were still international
3: borders. Mm.
4: Not, again, not...
3: There's a lot of international borders between not, different not countries. Not that way,
4: like borders, bookstores, including in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of those sold off or got bought by other companies prior to borders going under, and they still exist. Yeah. Uh, the first borders location stayed open.
3: All in, the way to the end.
4: All the way to the end, which is a pretty good benchmark.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there was... a. Uh, a sad ceremony held at the University of Michigan campus yeah. when the last one went, uh, closed. And uh, I love your your final fun fact here.
4: Yes, it's in all of my research, I came across an article on the Washington Post from may twenty fourth two thousand and thirteen, if you want to look it up on what you can still do with old borders gift cards. yeah, I mean, because you might come across like you might find one stuffed in a sock drawer one right, day, right among the. Suggestions. Suggestions. Were ninja stars. Uh-huh. And gifting them to people you don't like.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I like that second one a lot. I figured you might. Well that wraps up this episode. We want to thank Ashley again for writing in and suggesting these. Uh, the next few episodes we'll be recording are going to all be from listener requests. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of you out there are thinking about a company you would love to have us cover. Maybe there's a story about an amazing ascension or a terrible fall and you want us to give our take on it. If you want us to, to do that, uh, writing us is the best way to do it. Send us an email. They can send us that email at... feedback at the Brinkpodcast. Yep. And you can visit our website. That's the Brinkpodcast.show. You'll find the archive of the Elder episodes there and some information about your beloved hosts. And yes. speaking of those two beloved hosts, I have been Jonathan Strickland.
4: And I have been Ariel Caston. I'm gonna go read a book. Business on the Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and how stuff works.